Hey again, welcome to Door Creek. My name is Mark, one of the pastors here. Endings are very important, and our life is actually marked by transitions, is it not? As we look back, no matter how young or old we are, we can remember transitions in our life where one period ended and a new began. And endings can carry with them different emotions. Some endings are quite sad, other endings are quite hopeful, and yet often sometimes endings, as we transition from one period to another, will carry a juxtaposition within them where it's both joyous and yet there's also some grief. Endings are important. Think about the endings in your life. Maybe it's the time when you moved away from that house that you grew up in as a child and you remember all those memories and you're entering a new period of your life and you're leaving that behind. Or maybe it's the house that you started a family in. It's hard. Maybe especially in this season as there's many open houses are reminded that graduation marks the ending of an era in our lives. And some of us, the, that era was further ago than it was for others of us, but high school and college, right? The ending and, and, and yet the beginning. And sometimes it's the ending of something not so serious and sometimes we like anticipate the ending. Like maybe you've been in this place. I remember I've had a car like this where it just won't die and you can't justify getting rid of it until it dies, right? And so you're glad for that to finally end and you're glad to finally move on. I can finally get something to replace this. And yet also sometimes endings in our lives are very serious and very grave and some of us in this room walking through the passing of a loved one and how their physical life in this world has ended and it's hard to walk through that and how do you do that? Endings are important. Endings can teach us something. Endings can give us hope. Think of your favorite book. Great endings make for a great book, right? If it weren't for endings, why would we even start a book? You'd never read a book that didn't have an ending. It's different than those of you who never finish a book that you started. It's a different, if it didn't have an end, you wouldn't even bother reading it. And maybe it's not a book. Maybe it's a TV show or a TV series and you think of the final episode, the final cap to the series or how it just keeps going, a final movie. We love endings. Some of you will actually jump to the end of a book just to read that last paragraph. And that's what I love is when an author or a writer in the last scene, in the last episode, in the last page or paragraph, or if the author is just that good in the last sentence, they can sum up the entire work that you've been a part of, that you've been experiencing. Tying together all the loose ends, all the themes, all the ideas that have been dripping throughout and validating what you thought you've been reading in the text or seeing or maybe opening our eyes to something we haven't seen yet. And this morning we come to the end of 1 John. We've been in a series called True. And 1 John is a book where John has wrote a letter and it's, he's drawing a line in the sand throughout the entire book. He's drawing a line in the sand. This is what true spirituality looks like. This is what being a true follower of Christ looks like. This is the true gospel. This is the true son of God. This is true. And he draws a line in the sand not to just tell us what is true, but what is untrue as well. And we come to the end of his book, and it's important as we think about endings that we pay attention to how John ends this book. How in this last chapter, he ties up themes that he's been dripping throughout this text, this text that is very poetic, very cyclical, as it just keeps coming back to the same ideas over and over and over again. And how he sums these up in this last chapter, and yet he leaves us with a thought for a great application. So we're going to dive into 1 John today. So let's get 
our Bibles out, and if it's a smartphone, a tablet, get it out, okay? First um, John, Gospel of John is another book that John wrote. We're not in the Gospel of John. We're actually in the epistle. First John is towards the end of the Bible. First John chapter 5. And let's read this text together. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a 30,000-foot flyover of verses 1 to 17. And uh, we're only doing that because it sets up where we'd like to land for our time together. And that is the last four verses, the climax of his ending. What we can have for the greatest application from 1 John, summing up this entire series. All right, so 1 John 5. Let's read this together. Verses 1 through 5. I'm reading out of the NIV, if you're following along. It says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We'll stop there for a second. These first five verses, as he opens the very closing of his letter, these first five verses are important for us to understand that he is now wrapping up, summing up three major ideas, three major things that he wants the true believer to identify them with. And that is faith, love, and obedience. Faith, love, and obedience. Faith, love, and obedience are themes that he's been dripping through this text. For the first four chapters, this is what he's been talking about. Faith, love, and obedience. We can see this in the first five verses. Let's look again. We'll look at it together. Verse one says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. So we have faith and we have love coupled together. Verse two, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. We have a love and obedience. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. Again, love and obedience. And this, his commands are not burdensome for everyone Born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. He brings it back to faith. And John is saying faith, love, and obedience are so woven together that you cannot have one without the other two. You cannot have two without the third. The fact that the identity of a Christ follower is love paved by faith marked by obedience. And he weaves these three themes together, summing them up in these first five verses. And then he ends verse five talking about Jesus, the son of God. And once again, something that he's been doing throughout this entire text is laying out, this is true doctrine. This is true doctrine. And he's always reassuring the believer, reassuring them that you can believe that this is Jesus, the son of God. And he does that six through 13, talking about three witnesses, talking about how Jesus testifies, how God testifies of Jesus. We pick up, read with me in verse 10. It says, whoever believes the Son of God accepts this testimony. And what is this testimony? But jump down to verse 11. It says, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life in his Son, whoever has the Son, has life. Whoever does not have the Son, does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have life. John, repeatedly in this text, he's encouraging us. He's encouraging us. If you're found in Christ, you have life. 
If you're found in Christ, you have eternal life. The greatest ending, as we talk about endings, the greatest ending of all endings is life with him in glory. It should motivate us. It should be our hope. It's our security, the fact that we can be found in him. And John is constantly reminding the reader, reminding us who are found in Christ, who believe in his name, who accept his testimony, you have eternal life. And then verse 14 through 17 John talks about prayer, both private prayer and public prayer. We're not going to spend too much time on this except to say this, that 16 and 17 are often very controversial verses, even among people in the same camp in the Christian faith. And there is something, though, that we can take away from this text. I just want to highlight and bring out uh, verse 16 and 17. That is this. It says, there is sin that leads to death, and there is sin that does not lead to death. And we can know this, that John over and over again reminds us of the promise we have in God in eternal life. And so as we think about sin that leads to death and sin that does not lead to death, we can have this assurance that if we're found in the Son of God, if we're found in Jesus, if we accept his testimony, our sin has been atoned for. Our righteousness is now found in Christ. And so our sin does not lead to death. This is the sin that does not lead to death. The sinner that is found in Christ. John, once again, throughout this book, this is what he's doing. He's reminding us of our assurance. He's reminding us of the confidence we can have in him, of the confidence that if we really put him first, that he will guide our steps, as Proverbs 16, 9 says, and that as we really put him first, we will pray according to his will, not ours, and we have be confident that he will answer our prayers. So this is how John is speaking in the first 17 verses. And then we come to verse 18, the very climax of this text, what he would have us to really take hold of together. And let's look at that together. Let's look at verse 18. We're going to read 18 through 21 together. Look at this, 1 John 5, verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. One, the one who was born of God, keeps them safe. And the evil one cannot harm them. We know we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Love that last verse. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. So we look at verse 18. There's something that we have to address. There's something that we have to address. It says, those born of God do not continue to sin. What does this mean? How can you not continue to sin if you're born of God? Does this mean we should strive for perfection? Does this mean that we somehow lose our faith as soon as we sin? And if we look at the greater scope of what John is teaching us, he's teaching us about God's promise of eternal security, eternal salvation. So it was not helpful for us to think that we can somehow lose our salvation. But we must remember too that in this last chapter, he's closing He's closing, he's concluding what he's talked about. And so the reader who would have read this letter from the very beginning would remember that in chapter three, just a few chapters back, he talks about the sin, not continuing to sin. And what John's referring to is that there is a change of heart when Christ is now Lord of our life. Namely, the Holy Spirit residing in us. Enabling us to set our mind on things above, to focus on the Lord, to be dedicated, to be obedient. And the one who convicts us of our sin. And when we sin, we now have grief. 
that drives us to repentance. And so this is what John means when he says that one who's born of God does not continue to sin, not that he will be, a, not that he will be sinless, but that he will be found in Christ and Christ will help him be free from a life of sin. John is well aware of the sad facts of life in a sinful world, the same world in his day as it is today. His statement that the child of God does not sin is at once a promise and a demand. It's a promise and a demand. It's a promise because of what we just said, because the Holy Spirit now lives inside you. Because the Holy Spirit now lives inside you as a believer, there's a promise that the Spirit will help you. It's also a promise because of this, what he's reminding us, the promise of God of eternal life. That one day, the children of God will not remain in this world, but will be with him in glory. And when we're with him in glory, we will be sinless. With him in all his glory and holy perfection. And what a promise this is, as John gives us, the readers of this text, for those who believe in the Son of God. But it's also a demand. It's also a demand because John continually grounds the believer, continually grounds the reader by doing this. He reminds us of this hope. He reminds us of God's great grace in our lives, of eternal security. And yet, John, even in that day, is well aware of what we struggle with today, and that is just to get lost in our own hope, get lost in our own security, that we forget where we are. And John constantly reminds us in this text, you have eternal life, but you are not there yet. You are not there yet. While Christ will keep you in his grace, he has not relieved you of your responsibility in this place. And we see this because those born of God will not continue to sin is a demand in the sense to remind us, hey, you're a follower of Christ. You are a follower of Christ. We read on in verse 18. The second half of verse 18 says, the one who was born of God keeps them safe. And you must notice that uh, the one, one was with a capital O and referring to Jesus Christ, keeps us safe, protects us. We have this very strong image of what the psalmist also talks about, about a strong tower, a mighty fortress. We're reminded of when Jesus says in the gospel of John, verse 10, or chapter 10, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And he continues, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will snatch them out of my father's hand and I and the father are one. What great security can we have for our hope in him? That Jesus says, no one can take you out of my hand. No one can take you out of my father's hand. And guess what? We, we are one. I'm reminded of, of a verse that we sing, uh, the song called In Christ Alone. And the second half of the last verse says, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from God's hand. Amen. No power of hell and no scheme of man. We have such a strong hope and security in who we are in Christ. And when then we read in verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Once again, John just continues to ground the believer, right? In verse 18, does not continue to sin. He keeps us safe. And then verse 19, 
You're children of God. So there's this, all of a sudden, this language of affection, a child and a father, and how that can define a relationship with the Almighty, this existential relationship that's real. And then he reminds us, like he does, he grounds the believer because you are in the world which is under the control of the evil one. We must not underestimate Satan's reign in this world, the power of the prince of darkness. John 17, 11, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is seen praying, and he prays for us. He's praying for us, and he prays to the Father that although he will not remain in the world, because now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God Almighty, that we will remain in the world. We do remain in the world, and he prays to keep and protect us. To keep and protect us. And we must understand this more by thinking about when in Ephesians, Paul talks about the armor of God. Why do we need armor unless we're in battle? Why would you need to defend yourself unless you were in a hostile place? John's reminding the reader, you cannot underestimate where you are. And if it's not enough to understand the power of the prince of darkness in this world, we have our own sinful nature to boot. If it's not enough that this world is in control of the evil one, we have our own sinful nature to boot. And we're already sinful. The odds are clearly stacked against us. John spares no expense in eliminating any illusion that being a follower of Christ is easy street. He spares no expense in just dispelling this illusion that we can get into sometimes when we just, all we focus on is the hope and our hope and the eternal glory and we need to focus on that but we need to be careful and this is what John is saying because while Christ keeps us in his grace, while we cannot fall from Christ, while we have hope in Christ, he does not relieve us of our responsibility in this place. And so we get to verse 20. Let's read that again. Verse 20 says, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. And once again, John is just reminding the believer of true doctrine, of true faith, the fact that we have understanding to know that we can know God, understand this world. And when it comes to understanding this world, one author put it this way, that people in general are at least ignorant and more likely willfully blind. Because today it's fashionable to imagine that morality and religion are separable. And some of you in this room struggle with that. That you can actually separate morality and religion, spirituality. Because why aren't the things that I do good apart from Christ? Some of this room may struggle with that right now. You are not found in Christ and you don't understand why you need Christ because you are a good person. Why is not all the money I've given toward a nonprofit, name it whatever it is, why is that not counted as righteousness? Why is that not counted as good? Why is all the time that I have spent giving of myself not counted as righteousness? Why is that not counted as good? And on and on and on. And John reminds us in this text that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no real understanding of the truth. Apart from Christ, there is no truth. 
You cannot have truth without Jesus Christ. If you cannot have truth, if you do not have truth, if you do not have Jesus Christ, you don't have the power to live according to the truth. It's him in us that makes our acts works of righteousness in his name. So we get to the end of verse 20 and it says, and we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And once again, John is reminding us of this other theme. Remember, I said this book is cyclical. It keeps, John keeps dripping these themes, these ideas throughout the entire text, throughout the entire book. One of them, one of the most important ones, reminding us of our eternal security in Christ. John ends verse 20, reminding us of our security in Christ. We already looked at the first chapter when John opened his book. And we read again, John 1. John 1, the second verse, says this, the life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And in every chapter, he talks about how we can be confident of our eternal life in him. And in the last chapter, this chapter that we're studying today, he lists it four times. And we've looked at all four instances. In verse 11, when it says, in Christ you have life. In verse 13, that we are reminded we have eternal life. In verse 18, and now in verse 20, as we see this, eternal life. We can be confident that the greatest ending of all ending is ours if we are in him. So then you get to verse 21, and verse 21 is a great verse. You get to verse 21, and it says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, if you're at all familiar with some of the other epistles in the New Testament, some of the other letters to the church, the ending is quite unique. Because most of us are familiar with a Pauline epistle, Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, and they end with what we know as benedictions. And may the grace of God be with you. And they're very inspiring and, and if I can use the term flowery, but in a very doctrinal way, and they're great, just confident endings. And so you read the end of First John and you're like, why didn't John stop at verse 20? Why, why? I mean, think about this. So read the text. Why wouldn't you end with that we know the Son of God has come to give us understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life and all God's people said amen and we go out with this hope. We go out with this glory. Why wouldn't you end with eternal life? You have this verse, and in, in even ending, why wouldn't you end with, and then by God's grace, may you grow in his love. But no, John ends with, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And at face value, it's just like, what? what? Like, did he just like forget he was writing, you know, have a cup of coffee and then come back? And then like, this must be what I was supposed to say. But if we look at what John has been doing throughout this text, we remember that he keeps reminding us not only of our hope and glory, not only of who we are in him, but that we are still here in this place. And if this last verse does anything, it pushes home the fact that while God, Christ keeps us in his grace, he does not relieve us of our responsibility in this place. Our responsibility to be faithful, to love to be obedient. This is verse 21. 
And he sets up this last statement talking about knowing. 18 says, we know. 19 says, we know. 20 says, we know. And the Greek form of this, to know, is not like you will come to understanding, but that know is a knowledge. It is a certainty. You do not need to search to find this. This is truth. This is knowledge. This is fact of who Christ is and who you are in Christ if you accept his testimony. We know that we have this existential, existential, personal, interactive relationship with the Father. And as long as we are here, we must keep ourselves. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, 1, when it says, live worthy of the calling you have received. Live worthy of the calling. I remember being in high school, 11th grade, I read this verse and remember thinking, this is my life verse because I thought that it meant the calling to be a pastor. And I was like, yes, I have a verse to back my vocation and I will live worthy of the calling to be a pastor. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not at all what Paul is saying. And I remember as I was continuing to grow in my own faith and digging into the text, coming to this understanding that the greatest calling I have in my life is not to be a pastor, is not to be a husband, is not to be a father, but to be a child of God. And that we should live worthy of the calling received, that is the calling to live as a child of God. This is what Paul again talks about in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And oftentimes that is all we hear of that text. Work out your salvation. And isn't that burdensome? You hear that and it's burdensome. Work out your salvation. Well, how am I supposed to do that? And we can't stop reading at verse 12. We have to read verse 13 because it is our hope. For it says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It is not a right nutritional diet at work in you. It is not a right vocation at work in you. It is not a right relationship at work in you. It is not a right, put anything in that blank. It is only God at work in you. This is why in verse three of the same chapter, he says his commands are not burdensome. His commands are not burdensome because he's already paid the price because he's committed to have the spirit living inside of us so that we can strive to work out our salvation because of it is God working in us. It's God working in us. So it says keep yourselves from idols. So we have to talk about idols a little bit. It's the last word in the text. What are idols? Our mind goes to like little figurines maybe. Like little Buddha statues or maybe like in the Bible when it talks about how Aaron made the golden calf. Idols. Or maybe you've heard the analogy of, you know, well, you can't let your job be an idol or your relationship be an idol or, you know, um, your car, whatever toys that you have. Don't let those be idols in your life. And I think that to really understand what John is trying to tell us and really understand idols better, we have to just push the paradigm of idols a little bit further to help us understand this text. And that is to first understand that an idol is anything that we put in the place of God, anything in our life that comes first, anything that drives us except for the love and grace of Jesus Christ, the joy of our salvation in him. 
And I think while our cars and our toys and our jobs can be idols, I think it's actually driven by something much deeper than that. Things like the idol of power. The idol of just wanting to win, wanting to be successful, wanting to have the right amount of influence, the right influence, the kind of influence that allows you to have power. Now, is this wrong inherently? Not necessarily. It's when it becomes first. It's when this governs our life. And our greatest fear is humiliation. If the idol of power is in your life, your greatest fear is to be humiliated because that completely undoes everything that you've done to gain influence, to gain success, right? And all of a sudden you have to work back up the ladder. And Christ quickly reminds us, that a follower in him will humble themselves as Christ humbled himself. Maybe it's not power, maybe it's comfort. And this really hits home in America where we deal with a lot of first world problems. Maybe it's the idol of comfort where we actually put being comfortable in front of what God has asked us to do. And it may be a stereotypical example, but an example in and of itself where we're, we are more than happy to stay in our homes, in our safe places, even invite some other people who we know believe the same thing we do. And we love to just, we love, and we should pray for others. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we love to just pray for our neighbor. We love to pray for that coworker. We love to pray for that person who's in the city dying leading a life of sin, has no idea of the love of Christ. And we love to just do that without ever leaving our safe zone. And we can fool ourselves that this is okay. But we must remember that the true believer is a believer marked by faith, marked by love, and we need to share this love. God did not call us to live lives where we're just comfortable, where we're selfish. And there's nothing inherently wrong with having a lot of comfort. But when you put comfort above serving God, it has become an idol. What about approval? The idol of approval. When affirmation and the love from others and relationships in our lives take first priority over everything. When our biggest fear in life is being rejected. We, don't, we can't even possibly imagine being rejected because that would just hurt us. And this is what drives us to stay comfortable to not love others. And yet Christ reminds us that if we're found in him, we will be rejected by this world. But that our fulfillment will not come from the love of others, but our fulfillment will come from the love of God who is in us, who has already fulfilled us. Maybe it's the idol of control. And again, not inherently wrong, but when self-discipline and the checklist maker and the standard setter, when that becomes the thing that just drives your life and you can't handle uncertainty, you can't handle anything else because you have to be in control, my friends. God is the only one who is in control. And the only certain thing we can be of in this world is that there is a true God, there is a true Jesus Christ. He died, he rose again, he is on the throne, and we can have eternal life in him. That is what we can be certain of. That is what we can be certain of. You know, and I remember when we started this series, Mark said uh, that we can't walk away from this text just wanting to try harder. 
And I want to repeat that this morning. Well, I did just repeat it. But I want to repeat that to you. We cannot walk away from this text as we think about our responsibility to just try harder. I will try to have a better faith. I will try to have better love. I will try to be more. I'm going to just try to do this. We, We cannot do that because it's not in our own power. We have to rest in God's power. We have to rest in his love. We have to remember that his grace remains in us, is that it's by his grace we can do any of this. It's by his grace that we cannot continue to sin. And this is why the tone of John's letter is all about the confidence we can have in him, Jesus Christ, and that we are in him, and that he will keep us if we know the true Christ. And maybe a great application for today is really to think about the word Christianity, the word Christ, the word God, because in today, that world, those words are just thrown around so many different places. Well, how do you really know what a Christian is anymore? I just got an email about statistics just in Wisconsin, and it was something to the fact that like 70%, over 70% of Wisconsin believes they are Christians. And at first you're like, yes! And then the same people surveyed, it's like less than 30% of those 70% actually believe in the Jesus, the Son of God. What does it even mean to be Christian? Here at Dora Creek, we'll often try and use words to help explain this, like follower of Christ. But still, we have to be faithful in having true doctrine. What, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? What do you believe? Do you believe that he is God incarnate or that he was just a teacher? Do you really believe that he died a atoning Penal substitutionary death for your sins. Or was his death just exemplary? Did he even rise again? Did he die at all? Is the teaching of Jesus true, complete, and authoritative? Is this the word of God? Or, if this isn't the word of God, if this isn't all we need, or do we need more teachings to supplement this partial start to what we'd have as the word of God? What is real Christianity? What do you really mean when you say that you're a Christian? Are you really? What do you really believe about Jesus Christ? According to John's book and indeed the entire word of God, anything that detracts us from Christ is idolatrous. Anything. And uh, as we close, I'm just going to ask the band to come up and um, just start playing as we... As we close, John closes his letter. He ends his letter by bringing great closure to the believer. Book ending with this assurance that if you are a child of God, you have eternal security. You have eternal security. He talks about life throughout, and he wants you to get that, that you have eternal life. John leaves us in verse 20, finally oriented in the direction which he started this text, the direction towards eternal security. Direction toward God, toward the incarnation, toward the Son, toward witness, toward eternal life. Because as we look at endings, as even as John ends this book, he wants us to understand that there is the best ending, the greatest fairy tale ending, the original fairy tale ending of all time, and that is eternal life with Him, eternal life in perfection with Christ. 
And he doesn't want us to ever lose that hope. And maybe if you're found in Christ this morning, you have that hope and that is hopeful. And maybe you're not found in Christ this morning and you want to have that hope. I want to let you know that you can have that hope, that you can have that eternal security by being found in his son, by accepting his testimony. And yet, as we stated, while Christ will keep us in his grace, he does not relieve us of our responsibility in this place. Right? While Christ keeps us in his grace, he does not relieve us of our responsibility for true faith, for true love, for true obedience. And I love the song that we just sang earlier. Sing salvation of my soul. Sing out once again. King of glory holds my story even till the end. Waiting here upon the earth for him to come again. King of glory holds my story even till the end. Though this heart may falter, I will rest in God alone. His grace remains. His grace remains. So know this, O my soul. Glory near and far away. His grace remains. His grace remains. Know the true Christ. Know that he is the true God. Know that he is the true son. Know that he is the true vine. Know that he is the true branch. Know that he is the true beginning, the true end to all true religion. Know that if you know the true Christ, you are found in the true son, you are found in the true God, you are found in his grace, which is true, and you have eternal life. This is the greatest ending that we could ever ask or imagine for. And while Christ will keep us in his grace, he will not relieve us of our responsibility in this place. So by God's grace, by God's grace, dear children, friends, by God's grace that remains by his grace, let us keep ourselves from idols.